This is Novel Approach, Episode 14. For September 15th, 2022. With your host, James Soden. And special guest, Linda Stewart. Welcome to the Novel Approach, the podcast about creative writing. Each week we talk to guests who may be writers, editors, librarians, directors, or producers. I'm Jim Soden, the host for this podcast, and our goal is to talk with other people who love storytelling, whether in books, films, oral presentations, or other podcasts. And my guest today is Linda Stewart, who is uh, a professor at uh, St. Louis Community College at Florissant Valley, has had a number of uh, really great experiences that she's going to tell us about, uh, and who has uh, submitted some writing that um, we are including on our uh, Bearhound Seven Productions website. And she's also um, a member of a group that uh, prepares uh, presentations uh, to be given on stage. And, and these are basically storytelling. And so, Linda, it's great to have you on the podcast uh, to be able to talk with you and uh, to sh- uh, listen to some of the things that um, that you like to do as a writer and a teacher of writing as well. Um, and so uh, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Jim. I'm happy to be here. So um, you want to maybe tell us a little bit about uh, briefly about some of your experiences um, that have brought you to this point in your career. Uh, I know you've had a number of different interesting um uh, jobs as you've built that career and some things that you've done, um, uh, traveling, uh, being a, a member of the Peace Corps, um, uh, teaching and having, and you were with um, one of the radio stations for uh, a number of years. So you've done some really interesting things. Well, I, you know, I guess it sounds more polite to say, oh, no, it's not that interesting. But actually, I I have uh, really had a good time as just a person moving along in life and also with the kinds of jobs I've had along the way. I can honestly say I've never had a job that I didn't like what I was doing. And I'll never tell you about the people I didn't like at those jobs, but that's a whole different story. So yeah, um, you know, my um, my my first love was reading, and that came from my mother, who, when I was just a little tyke at the kitchen table, she used to point to packages on the table and ask me what it was, and we would spell that. So milk. M-I-L-K, 
and SALT, S-A-L-T. So uh, she turned it into a game, which I loved. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I kept wanting to add things to that. And then, you know, she was a big proponent of the library when we were kids. And then, you know, I started reading books and novels. And there, I was very gripped by stories and so amazed that there are people in the world who can craft these stories. My first novel was Little Women. Uh, but uh, so that's, you know, how I gained a love for the written word and wish that I could be a talented writer that people would want to uh, read. Uh, that's not the way I went, though. I really went uh, to corporate America where I wrote all the time. You know, I wrote people's speeches. Uh, I wrote uh, training manuals and modules, and, and, and that also included presenting. So um, I, I early on in my career had a job where I stood up in the public and I was supposed to help them learn something. Uh, it's what a corporate trainer does. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wound up over the years, I, want, I actually wanted to be, uh, thought that I should be a, a journalist and took quite a few journalism courses in undergraduate uh, school and learned that a really good journalist job is pretty boring uh, (laughs) and that you take whatever you're assigned and you turn it into a story and you get it in on time. And I did some freelancing and I learned about doing that. I learned about how to write something even when it was boring, but I got the number of words because you don't get paid till that's right they, till till they use your story, so that's good incentive. Um, the journalists that I was thinking of are the small number that we see on TV or that write magazine articles, and their work is much more glamorous. <laughs> but I bet they started it's because they were able to do the other part. So that's how I got involved in writing, and then I. Graduate school, I I have a master's in communications. So that's my background. Uh, and what I like about communications, uh, I think people are the same. I don't care what language they speak, where or how they live, our motivations are the same, the things that make us happy, the things that we want out of life. And so I like the idea of uh, being able to speak to people in many ways, visually, what they can hear, um, how, how we connect to one another. I like the idea that that shows us this common commonality that we have, this common thing about how we live and how we work together. So that was, I think that's what draws me to the idea 
that um, writing needs to be clear. And so I, I, um, I started with the college as a part-time job while I was working uh, at Lutheran Our Ministries. That's when I think I met you. Uh, and I was a full-time person there in Lutheran Hour, did radio and television shows, published, did publish books. We did do sort of some corporate training things within the church. And so um, that's how I came to St. Louis Community College as a uh, writing teacher. Um, my students are uh, like I was back when I was 18 and 19, uh, naive and thinking that you were ready for college and that you were ready for the rigors of college, but most of the time they're not quite ready when they get to us. So, um, but I like them because uh, they are eager uh, to learn, even if they think they already know it, they're eager to move on, you know, and we help them hopefully to to put themselves in the right place and 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 realize that they need to know more. So that's now, how Linda, you've um, you said that uh, you like uh, working with people regardless of what language they speak or any of those other things. Um, is part of that what led you um, eventually to join the Peace Corps and go to uh, Ethiopia? Yes, that was part of it. So another part is, uh, as an African-American, I just always wondered about Africa. You know, mm -hmm. what's it like? Where did I come from? What are, who are the people? Um, and so that was another driver. So when I applied for the Peace Corps, and there were many places to go. I specifically said, I, I want you to send me to Africa. Um, I went to Ethiopia, which was so different from anything I could imagine. It, it's a very, uh, if you don't know it in particular, it is in the Horn of Africa, the Eastern Horn of Africa, right next to uh, Saudi Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula. Mm -hmm. And the mouth of the uh, Nile River is in Ethiopia. So Ethiopia is an African country that is also very steeped in uh, uh, Middle Eastern traditions. So that was a surprise. So it wasn't any, it, you know, it wasn't like Tarzan or, or <laughs> as if anywhere in Africa is like Tarzan. Uh, so, so it wasn't the Africa that I had always seen depicted in the media. It's very different. Um, as a Peace Corps volunteer, you agree that you will live like the people you went to serve. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was assigned to a uh, farming village. And 
in that village, most people live um, without the luxuries of gas and electric or even water inside their homes. Mm -hmm. so, so that was my setup too. No plumbing. I, I did have electricity though. Uh, okay. No, no gas. So for cooking, I had a uh, hot plate. Um, and I had to get my water. So, uh, well, and as we talked about before, I wrote a, I wrote an essay about water and what it was like in Ethiopia. And then in the last few weeks, in fact, I, I've heard it every day this week. I have heard a story on the news about the drought, uh, which is now worldwide, and um, and how people, how we're coping in the United States with the drought. And one in particular I heard earlier this week uh, was about homeowners in California and the difficulty they were having with their lawns because they're restricted on what they can use on their lawns. And then in that same story, they talk to some farmers <laughs> who are having difficulty growing the food that we would like to eat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so so the, ju the juxtaposition of those two things, your lawn, a field of wheat, um, and the consequences of not being able to to keep either, there was a big difference in that. And that made me think about what it's like in a third world country when uh, water is not secure. You mm -hmm. don't know if you're going to have water. So I went back to my little story and uh, and 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 made some changes. So. This is probably a time when I should just read a couple, just a couple of things that. Uh... Before you do that, Linda. Okay. Um, let me interject one other thing here so that it kind of sets things up for our listeners. Okay. Um, right before the uh, pandemic hit us, you became a part of a program uh, to provide storytelling uh, on stage for audiences. Yes. And I, uh, I know that um, when you did that, you know, you were thinking about different things that you could, could use, different uh, experiences, uh, and getting that all developed. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. Right. Boom, that stopped everything. But um, the, I understand that uh, the story of water that you started in Ethiopia is one that you've now developed further so that it could be part of your storytelling experience um, for audiences. Is that correct? That That's correct. You know, I... Um before I went to uh, Ethiopia, one of the other things I did on the side is uh, I did some acting. 
So I've done some uh, some radio and TV commercials. And then uh, in keeping with that, I ran for Miss Missouri Senior, and I was second runner-up. So I was in the Queen's Court. And one of the things that we do is we perform around town, uh, all kinds of places, the state fair, uh, senior homes, uh, the history museum, uh, conventions, and things like that. So this whole idea of performing was something I wanted to really pursue. And I came back from Ethiopia and my agent never had a job for me. So then I started, <laughs> never. And so um, I thought, how do I get back into the, the loop so that my agent can get me a job? And people were, a few groups asked me to talk about my experience. Uh, and I did, but that made me begin to think, instead of talking about, this is what happened when I went to Ethiopia, what made more sense was to divide it into the separate kinds of experiences and things that I learned, things that changed me. And so that's how I, I, I had these little 10 minute stories. <laughs> Uh, that all happened there. So that's that's how the stories came up. I told someone about them, um, someone who used to teach at Lindenwood. And she said, you know, there's a group called the St. Louis Storytellers. Here's a phone number. Uh, you may want to call this lady and find out how to get involved. So, so that's the whole story of, uh, of me becoming a storyteller, because my real issue was I want to make some more commercials. <laughs> but so, uh, so that's that's. It. And you have a few. Uh, you want to read um, a few segments of your uh, story on water? Is that correct? Yes. 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 Okay. Just a segments. Uh, so, uh, my house had one bedroom, a living room and kitchen. Now the kitchen was a room with a big table where I kept my water purifier and kitchen supplies. My two burner hot plate was on the floor outside of my bedroom door because there was no outlet in the kitchen. I did not have plumbing, no water in the kitchen and no bathroom. Instead, I had a bucket and pan system, one bucket for filling and carrying water, a pan for dishwashing, a large pan for my sponge bath, and a bed pan with a cover. The Peace Corps training stressed the importance of clean drinking water. So I kept a supply of bottled water for, for drinking. I had a ritual. Every morning I left my house to go to the toilet and faucet. I set the water bucket by the faucet while I emptied the, the bedpan in the toilet. You probably didn't want to know that, but <laughs> next I filled my bucket with murky water. I could see sand and other debris. Back at the house, 
I feel the water purifier. That was the ritual, unless, of course, there was no water when I turned on that faucet. And two or three days a week, there would be no water. I use water from the purifier to wash dishes, take a bath, and clean the kitchen table. I cooked, brushed my teeth, washed my face, and drank bottled water. I made a personal choice never to use the compound shower and to avoid the squat toilet whenever practicable. But I could but I could afford to go to the city every other weekend and stay at a hotel with modern amenities. I did this for good mental health. So that's my experience having no water and that having no water it's hard work. You have to have rituals around water. You can't just turn on the faucet. Um, and so I think about that as we transition in this country. Really, the West Coast is in a transition, whether people realize it or not. If reservoirs are so low, they're finding bodies around Hoover Dam. Uh, uh, I just heard we're somewhere off of um, Italy. They've, uh, they can now see Nazi ships that were sunk during World War II because hmm. the, the water table level is so low. And so that means we have to change the way we do water. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so that's just an interesting thing to think about. I'm sure I, somebody is thinking, how can we manage this? We hope someone is thinking that. I, well, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, it, it was amazing to me. And I think uh, before I went to uh, Ethiopia, a lot of people voiced concern. Oh, no. You know, what's going to happen? It's so dangerous. It's this. And I started to tell people, I said, you know, but people live <laughs> in that country. And if people can live there and I'm a person, well, surely I can figure it out. But it's hard work. It's hard work when you have lack. Now, you were also teaching there. Is that right? Yeah, my job was uh, to teach 10th and 11th grade English. Um, my, my classrooms, I had about 70 people. How about that? Wow. Um, <laughs> yes. Three people to a desk. They were two-seat desks, but, you know, they squeezed three people in. Mm -hmm. My I my school did not have electricity. So I would have loved to use, you know, my laptop and let people see things. No, I had a chalkboard and I had an eraser. And so you fill the board up with things and you try to have sections of your board uh, some that stay up, some you let the kids write on. 
I had um, a limited supply of um, that easel paper, those big oh, white mm-hmm. sheets of paper. No easel, no easels no. were <laughs> So, but but there was tape, so you could do write and draw on those and hang them up. Hang them up. Yes, yes. Um, very eager students. So excited that they were getting an education. <clears throat> and did you have books? We had books, not one per person, mm-hmm. but but we did have books for the classroom. <clears throat> education in um, in Ethiopia is really rote, not the Socratic method. Not the questioning. Mm -hmm. And so that was very new to them. And so um, I tried to come up with things that were fun. Not my original idea. Peace Corps said, if you want to succeed, here's what you better do. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I, I, I tried to work with them through making small groups having games that we played that were educational. But I tell you what, if I skipped something in the book, because sometimes I wanted to rearrange things, they called me on it. They would say, you didn't do this part, Ms. Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so that was interesting. Always on time, always very polite. Uh, harsh system, a hard system. So in 10th grade, they were tested. If they did not pass this test, then they could not go on to 11th grade. Oh. Yes, they would be put into some kind of a technical school. Mm -hmm. Especially boys would, not necessarily girls. Uh, and then they were tested again in, le- in 11th grade. And then the same thing happened. You didn't pass. You didn't go to 12. But students who went to 12th grade went to college. Right. And mm. your score determined which college you were you were put in and what you uh-huh. majored in. Yes. Yes. Mm. So. uh yeah, that was a that was a, a hard system. So students who wanted to succeed, they were extremely aggressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, while you were there, uh, unfortunately, you got pneumonia. Is that right? <laughs> I, I did. <laughs> and you wrote an essay called "Leaving Ethiopia." Uh huh. <laughs> And you talked about uh, going from very quickly, um, going from uh, your little village to the town where you could actually get your flight and come back home to see a doctor here. Um, How far was that? (laughs) So it was a very long trip. So um, I lived in a town called Socorro which was a three-hour drive to a big city, Jima, J-I-M-A. And Jima was where there was one bus a day 
that would take you the eight hours, eight hour drive to Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, uh-huh. and there, where there was an airport. So in order to do that, low farming towns, people don't have cars. They have these tiny little three-wheel um, vehicles that they drive around town. And then to get from the farming area to a big city, you take a minibus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I wrote in that, uh, that essay about leaving, uh, I had to, not only did I, so I, I had partially covered, recovered from pneumonia when I got uh, conjunctivitis or pink eye. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So that was all going on. I was not feeling really good. (laughs) And I had to, in three days, uh, pack myself up, get rid of all my possessions in this house, and get myself to Addis Ababa, where Peace Corps headquarters was located, where the doctors Peace Corps doctors were because they won't let you back in the United States until they make sure you don't have some something mm-hmm. <laughs> that you will infect the whole country with. Right. So, uh, yeah. Um, now, as a part of that, you also had uh, a friend who's uh, was it a four four year old child who uh, became yes. uh, ill and had a severe fever? Um, but uh, her husband was the local ambulance driver. That's right. And so you didn't have to take that omnibus and bounce along <laughs> over the the roads for hours. Yeah. Uh, they put uh, oh. you and the the sick child and his mother in the. Ambulance and away you went. Is that correct? Yeah, that that's how it turned out. It was a, a a real quick thing that happened just overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I considered that like a great blessing to me uh, because um, the way we had planned it was I was going to the minibus was going to come to my house instead of me walking to the town square and uh, pick up my bags and me. And then I take that long trek. Mm-hmm. But, um, but because uh, this child got sick, they call me about 6 a.m. And uh, she said, well, we've got to leave. We don't have much time. We've got to leave. He's been sick all night. So I jumped up and started uh, grabbing everything I could. And and I think I they got there and we were so noisy that the people who owned the property uh, also got up and they came mm-hmm. back to my house and helped me, <laughs> <laughs> helped me get my things loaded. You know, I was, I was partially ready. Uh, so that was that was quite, and that took me to this to Jima, the closest big city, and then at 5:45 a.m., 
is when the bus, the one bus, left Jima to take me to Addis Ababa. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the Peace Corps had a taxi waiting for me in uh, Addis Ababa. Uh, And they were quite... One thing I have to say about the Peace Corps, now, while you're there, you take care of yourself unless you call them. But once I said, I want to go to the United States and my own doctor, <laughs> then uh, it was they were right on it. And they they literally watched my every move until I got on that flight to head back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So well, that's, that's an exciting story that should definitely be one of uh, part of your repertoire for um, your stage presentations. So. <laughs> uh, yes. In fact, I, I've, I've done it for the uh, for the people that were in the St. Louis Storytellers Group. Oh, OK. Yeah. So I've done it for them. But then, like you, you said, the pandemic came along mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and all of our uh, all of our dates were canceled. Now, is that group still um, uh, functioning? Has it since the pandemic is eased somewhat? Um, I don't think it's back to normal yet, but some people seem to. Mm-hmm. Has it been able to regroup and start up again? No, no. Um, yeah, occasionally I get an email, but there are no dates scheduled. And do they plan at some point in the future to try to revive it? And it's um, called the St. Louis Storytelling what? St. Louis Storytellers. Oh, St. Louis Storytellers. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, it actually was sponsored by UMSL. And there are Missouri storytellers. Uh-huh. There are Southern Illinois has has groups. So there are groups all over the country. And um, PBS has uh, a show now called On. Let's see, what is the name of that show? I wrote it down. Stories from the Stage. Oh, okay. Yes, Stories from the Stage. And uh, they invite people to audition or send it, send, send them a video of you telling your story. And then they invite people to some uh, to their studios to actually do the stories in front of audiences. Now, because of the pandemic, um, I'm not sure how they're doing that. I see the show sometimes and they are, but but I think they're older shows where they're in front of the audience and then they have people on Skype telling stories, Mm -hmm. but the show continues. Okay. Well, that's, that's good to know. Mm -hmm. Uh, One more thing uh, to add to this before we, uh, start uh, winding things up. You have an essay called Exelon. Is that the correct pronunciation? That's correct. (laughs) And that's uh, uh, a story in which an essay and a story in which you talk about um, some job um, 
issues. <laughs> Would you do, give us a brief summary of that essay? Uh, sure. So uh, I had been laid off. Uh, I lived in Southern California at the time, and I was laid off so that at the time my daughter was ready to graduate from high school, I still didn't have a job. It had been about 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, if you've ever been in a layoff, you know, they give you a package. So, right. that, you know, they give you some salary. They give you benefits. Um, so I had taken it as, you know, an opportunity, an opportunity to do something exciting, better than what I had. Though I was happy with what I had, but it would be better. But um, I was down to, after 18 months, I was at the end of my package, my salary continuation, though I had been working part-time and temporary jobs all along. And I, I came upon a, an, a, uh, an employment agency that found jobs for human resources professionals only, which is what I had been. So I signed up with them and I told them that the one job I did not want was to be a recruiter. I worked for a bank and I worked for a department store and I didn't want to recruit any more uh, of those jobs. I thought it was boring. So we agreed on that. It's time for graduation. My parents are coming and we have planned two weeks where um, we we were going to tour California because my dad had never been to California. And I get I get a call from the employment agency. And and for the third time since I signed up, they said, this is a recruiting job and they really need you. And I was like, oh, I really don't want to do it. But um they told me that if I didn't take the job, they were going to take me off their list. So I said, okay. No I'll choice. Take <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> I want to stay on your list. And then uh, I asked them, the start date was the day after graduation, where we were planning to be in San Diego was the big plan. So I uh, asked them if I could delay starting until Wednesday, just two days later. And they said no. So that's how I went to this company called Exelon Automation was their name. And I get there and it's a company that did something I didn't know existed. These two UCLA professors started the company because they pioneered research to make printed circuit boards, the boards that run everything we use now. And of course, you know how small these things are. So they made uh, machines that drilled holes that were as small as a strand of hair. And then they made some other robotic machines that would take those tiny wires that you can't, you can barely see, 
and put them onto these very small little green circuit boards. So they had, you know, there was an operator who operated the machine and you go onto the plant floor and there were all these things being made that the human eye can't see. And so in order to recruit for them, I sat down with department managers and talked, they talked about their technology. Here's how it works. Here's what we're doing. And I just was in awe <laughs> that it can be done. So um, I, I had no problem with the idea of finding the kinds of engineers who can make those things work and take on similar challenges. Um, and I've been there, uh, I think I, I wrote in the story, they didn't have room for me. They had no space in the human resources office. And so uh, the only space they had in their building was the former, was the old president's office. They had a new building and the president had a better office, but the they put me in this great office that was huge. And I had two rooms. I had a living room. I had my own bathroom. <laughs> and so uh, it was a great space. And I met people on the job. Or I should say people approached me who worked there wanting to get to know me because they thought I was really somebody since I was in that big office. But uh, and then <clears throat> the big thing that happened there, and I told this story in light of the idea that um, there is more, life is much more than uh, our, our, our intellect and the events that happen to us. So I believe in God and that there there is a dimension and I don't know where it is and I don't know how it works, but I know that it affects my life and things happen that I couldn't have planned for. So at this place, I, I was there a few weeks and the, the uh, human resources manager resigned. I was there to be a replacement for her with this recruiting. But she resigned. And then a few days later, uh, the person who would have taken her job, the supervisor I reported to, also resigned. So there was an important opening, a job that I could never have uh, thought this would be available if I skip hanging out with my family and take this job at Exelon Automation. And so I wound up getting the job after, after a few weeks and a series of, of interviews. But that's why I wrote the story. I wrote the story with the idea that here's an example of uh, something that happened to me that had so much more going on than what's apparent. I, I really like the ending of that story where uh, your last little paragraph, you say, 
I took the Exelon assignment to save my relationship with the placement agency. No one involved knew I was beginning my new job. And, yeah. and that's just wonderful. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. I've marveled at that. So. Well, Linda, I think uh, we've probably come to the end of our time here. Do you have any last thoughts that you want to share with us about uh, your view of, of writing, of storytelling, of uh, whatever? <laughs> oh, gosh. I, you know, the only thing I could really share is um, it. I, I think it's kind of a privilege because, you know, not everybody likes to sit down and put, <laughs> sit down at the computer or sit down and write their ideas down. But um, actually, it's a privilege to, as you write ideas down, you actually start learning things and you find out that your idea was actually had more dimensions than you ever thought it did before you started thinking it through. So writing is a great tool for uh, critical thinking, which we love to talk about at the college, yes. but it, it is a wonderful way to put yourself in a position to think more carefully and more, more closely about anything at all. I hope I'm not misattributing the uh, quotation. I think it was E.M. Forster, the uh, British writer and critic who said, how do I know what I think until I see what I say? And so <laughs> that's, that's exactly what you're saying. The process of writing yeah. sometimes forces you to uh, think and see and then understand what it is that that you really think and are wanting to uh, to communicate yes yeah i agree so well linda thank you very much for being uh, on the podcast today uh i've i've enjoyed it i think our uh, listeners will and i want to remind our uh, listeners that if they enjoy these podcasts, they can subscribe to them through wherever they get their podcasts. And then our uh, novel approach today is brought to you by Fairhound 7 Productions, the Something Different Network, and Uncommon Sense Radio 4.0, the podcast. Linda, thank you for being here. And all of our listeners, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Jim. I, I enjoyed it. <laughs>